Award-winning composer Jimmy Lopez seems to do the impossible, create large-scale works for orchestra and the operatic stage that are both contemporary and accessible. His 2015 opera, Bel Canto, written for the Lyric Opera of Chicago, met with great critical acclaim and was even featured on PBS's Great Performances. I sat down with Jimmy at the Alternate Thursday Studios in downtown L.A., where he had just come from a meeting with Esapekka Salonen regarding his latest commission, an oratorio for soprano Anna Maria Martinez and the Philharmonia Orchestra. Jimmy Lopez, welcome to Classical Chops Hello. Studio. Pleasure nice. to be so here. So nice to have you. So you are just in from a meeting with Esapekka Salonen uh, in Santa Monica about a new oratorio for Anna Maria Martinez and the Philharmonia Orchestra called Dreamer. What can you tell us about that? Wow, it's uh, an amazing project, actually, and um, it's really close to my heart. Uh, the commission is from College Performances, UMS, University of Musical Society, and... Um, uh, the Hewlett Foundation is also giving funds, and Stanford Life is also presenting, and Washington Performing Arts is also involved in the commission. So it's a it's a large group of people who are like betting on this project, and I think we all feel that it's very important, very timely. You know, the conception basically the the, in, the inception was a few years ago, so the political climate was different. Um, That's for sure. Yes. Well, we had a more bright outlook, I would say, a brighter outlook back then. So we have, you know, things have turned in a different direction. And I know Nilo Cruz, who's writing the libretto, and myself are very conscious about that. Um, And we've also, you know, realized how much more present in the news the whole subject of of dreamers is every day. Um, So we started by interviewing a few dreamers. I started in January of this year, and then Nilo came to Berkeley, and we did more interviews in March. And uh, they are basically our main source of information. And I've had these wonderful interviews that were facilitated by call performances at UC Berkeley uh, with actual dreamers. There are over five, 500 of them in campus, and they have all these resources and support, which is quite exceptional, actually. But then when you talk to them, you realize uh, how different each one of their cases is and how fascinatingly you know, heartbreaking their stories can be. Um, were they all heartbreaking? Were there any that were positive well, or inspiring? Uh, some of them were more intense than others, for sure. The th- if you think of you know deferred action, you know that's that's what the the first DA in DACA stands right. for. Basically, they are in limbo. They are waiting for a decision to be made by the immigration authorities, and as of now, it's all uncertainty because it's all being played in the courts. Uh, but of course, many of them were very vocal and less afraid during the Obama administration. But many of those of them have decided to, to keep a low profile nowadays in fear of retaliation towards them or their families. So, you know, I've met people from, from Mexico, from El Salvador. Obviously, not all cases are the same. Some of those, for example, they come from mixed status families. And uh, some of them... Um, you know, you will have a sibling who is an American citizen who was born in American soil and, you know, someone who was born abroad. And then, so that brings this kind of uh, 
dissonance as well within each family. You know, one of yeah. them has all the privilege, one of them doesn't. And complexity. Uh, it is very complex. And um, of course, I cannot disclose all the details because they have given, you know, all of this information and confidentiality to us. Of course. And we, we are adamant in protecting their identities as well. But they have been very, very generous in sharing their stories. And those stories are the source of inspiration from which Nilo is from now, you know, crafting this libretto. So the, um, the project is an oratorio, 45 minutes long, and it's going to be written for Esa Pekasaladen and the Philharmonia Orchestra of London, who are touring the U.S. next year and are going to be in a residency at Cal Performances for about three days. And, uh, and the soprano is going to be Ana Maria Martinez, a wonderful I love soprano. Her, yes. So, I mean, there's so much I can tell you about this project because I myself have been an immigrant for the longest time, I might not share exactly all the hardships that they are going through, but I do understand the concept of displacement, um, of leaving your country, of you know, in trying to integrate yourself into a completely different culture. I, I've done that basically three times in my life. Um, first, when I was a child, I was 11 years old when my parents brought me to Miami. Um, my sister and I, we were there for a year just studying. I think the plan was to stay, but things didn't work out that way, and we ended up uh, going back to Peru. But anyway, that year in Miami was really, really intense and very, very instrumental to me deciding to being a composer, actually, uh, improving my English and understanding what, you know, trying to thrive in a different culture is. And what made it so intense? Um, I that think... your status was in limbo? No, back mm. then we... I actually, in, in those terms... It was fine. So I can imagine the added stress of that, you know. But right. most children are not made aware of their status, you know. Right. They really become aware much later in life. Um, one of the people I spoke to actually only learned about her status when she applied for college, for example. That's unbelievable. So do you agree with this? Well, what happens is that it's just a fact. It's just perhaps the family didn't want to expose her to this information. And she grew up, you know, in a, an environment that more or less everybody spoke Spanish. And, um, you know, nobody really wanted to share this with them. And then sh all her dreams all of a sudden are shattered because, you know, there's a lot of things that are not possible for oh, her I can imagine. to achieve. In my case, when I was 11 years old, I wasn't aware of much, you know, to be honest with you. But what I do remember clearly was leaving all my friends behind entering this new country where things are very different, the, the, the climate is different, the, the behavior of people is different, the language I, you know, I could understand, but I wasn't fluent in it, so it was a constant struggle. I was also a very you know, dedicated student, and I remember being frustrated by getting like, low grades at school just because I wasn't able to understand what was going on. So that was very frustrating, too. And at this point, where were you in your musical development? Well, I had started, uh, I think I had started playing the piano when I was five. But I was, I will say, more like playing around with the piano than actual playing. Funny thing is, I didn't even know how to read music back then. I started with a kind of a Suzuki-like method where I was just memorizing things. And I don't think my parents thought I was going to be a serious musician. Uh, my sister started playing a little bit of the piano. And which actually it was an electric organ, to be literal, you know. Um, and then, you know, I just toyed around with it and I liked it. But I was playing some pieces here and there, but I wasn't serious about music. But, you know, when I was there, that was one of the things that actually connected it to myself the most. You know, when I was at home and 
you know, I was a very shy kid, so I wouldn't have a lot of friends. I would spend a lot of time in the library, and then I would go back home and just play the piano, you know, and improvise a little bit on it. And I think that was one of the first sparks that I had of, like, an intimate connection with, with the instrument that I hadn't had before, you know. before and it was with yourself, it seems, yeah, too. It was true. your sanctuary. That's correct. I Before that, I, it was more like my parents want me to do this, you know. And I like doing it, but they just like me to do it because they want me to play at family gatherings and all that, you know, which I will do reluctantly, but I will do. But then it really became a tool for self-expression in a way that I hadn't expected, you know. And that stayed with me when I went back to Peru. Now tell me about your training in Peru. Because one thing I want to talk about is, and you already mentioned this, this amazing background you have, especially with your academic studies from Finland or from Lima to Finland to Berkeley. I think this is fascinating. Yeah, I've, I've been yeah jumping around a lot. I, I always wanted to explore the world, and I knew that Lima wasn't going to be my ultimate destination, especially because of my profession. You know, I... I looked up to Europe because, you know, of all you know, classical music and the European tradition. And what, is, and what is the music scene like in, in Lima? In Lima, it is different now than it was then when I was growing up. Uh, it's a lot more thriving now. Uh, Lima used to be out of the circuit in, the, in terms that if you had a famous soloist or, you know, performer like Rene Fleming, you know, she would not necessarily stop in Lima. She would probably hop from, I don't know, Buenos Aires to mm-hmm. Sao Paulo and perhaps Bogota and, I don't know, Santiago. But Lima was not within, you know, this, the stops that you would contemplate. Uh, now it is. Uh, we have the infrastructure, you know, is, is, is getting better. Organizationally as well, we have the National Symphony, which is now performing... 20th century works, which was not the case a few years ago. Um, and so back in my day, I will say there was not much going on in terms of contemporary music at all. And even, you know, the traditional repertoire was not well represented. What I, I got lucky, though, very lucky, that in 1994 I met um, conductor Miguel Hart Bedoya, who is also Peruvian, but he's based in the U.S. He conducts a four-part symphony orchestra and a Norwegian radio orchestra. Um, I met him when I was, I think, 15 years old. He was 25, but he was already like um, very entrepreneurial. He had uh, finished his studies at Juilliard, and he had established the Lima Philharmonic, uh, which was a very good orchestra uh, that lasted for a few years. It was, you know, private funds, so it, it didn't have a very long life. But I was lucky in that Miguel was friends with my uh, high school music teacher. And since the orchestra didn't have a place to rehearse, they would use our school's auditorium. So every single night, I will have a live orchestra rehearsing, and I will just gather, you know, I mean, I will get my music scores, and I will sit and just go through the rehearsal, to the point that, you know, my dad and Miguel had a conversation, and then Miguel ended up inviting me to be a part of the orchestra as assistant librarian, so the lowest of the lowest possible position you could have. Um, but I was so happy with it, you know, because I was basically, you know, I was putting things together, I was delivering flowers, I was doing whatever needed to be done, Right. but I was always around music. But you um, also had access to all the scores. Correct. <laughs> I had access to the whole library of the, the Philharmonic Orchestra. I did that job once years ago for that reason. I wanted to see all the scores. Well, and what I actually had, I think the greatest privilege for a composer is to have access to the conductor dissecting, you know, the the piece in front of you. Because what I like the most from orchestras is not 
it's not the actual performance, it's the actual work, the, the, the rehearsals. And, you know, you will see, oh, you know, the symphony sounds so different when you just take the brass or you just take the strings or just the woodwinds and you start dissecting the score, you start listening to it and you, wow, and you start discovering all these details that you were never able to discover when you were listening to the whole recording. And that gave me, you know, kind of a, a, a window into the inner thinking of the composer. And also from a young age, you must have... Um, he must have kind of nurtured you to know how to write for the orchestra, what not to do, what to do. And then you were also getting an orchestration lesson, basically, right? That's right. That's why I lost the fear of the orchestra. That's why my, my, my teacher, who now actually, my former teacher, uh, Peruvian teacher, who now turned 100 years old, uh, Enrique Turriaga, my personal Yoda, as I like to tell to call him, um, he he said, you've lost the fear of the orchestra early on. And that's true, because since I was in my teens, I was listening to the orchestra, and I actually started to write for the orchestra. Um, the first compositions are a mess, but, you know, that's the way it goes. I mean, it's <laughs> trial and error, you know, and you try something and you show it, and half of it doesn't work, but then you go back and, and you keep trying. It more than More than anything, more than a science, I always think that music is a craft, you know. It's something that you, you, you craft constantly. You have to polish your skills. Absolutely. Constantly. So, so yes, that was actually how I got lucky in terms of understanding the colors of the orchestra. And that's why the orchestra is always, well, has ever, ever since been my preferred medium of expression, musically speaking. And it seems not just lucky, you, you hit the compositional jackpot. <laughs> every composer's dream well not only that because you know my collaboration with Miguel then stopped uh, for a few years I went, um, after he left Peru I think in the late, late 90s he left um, you know the, the because he was really busy with other engagements uh, abroad so and, and I went to Finland so there was a few years that I we were not in touch but we, we regained touch I think around 2003 or four, we started exchanging scores, and he was like, "Ah, oh, what are you doing now? Oh, great!" You know, he conducted one thing here and there, like one movement of a piece. But then, when I moved to the U.S. in 2007, that's when our collaboration really took off. Uh, I, I can honestly say he took me under his wing because he believed in what I did, and he started to commission more works, and he started to play my music and really disseminate, you know, my work by, you know, programming it constantly. So I did hit the jackpot. In many more than one way. So tell me about dealing or dealing or working, collaborating with conductors. Um, since you just came from Esapeca, what are the differences between these conductors? Well, each conductor has his or her own different, you know, personality. And what I've always learned is to respect their connection with the orchestra. Like, I always, well, the orchestra, you know, you don't usually approach the orchestra directly. You know, you want to do it through the conductor. That's like etiquette, basically, basic etiquette. But it's not only that. It's also because the conductor is the, the, best, the best equipped individual to communicate your intentions to the orchestra. Exactly. And also because they are so skilled at doing this. And it also depends on whether they are conducting a guest orchestra or whether it's their own orchestra. You see them more at ease when it's their home base, you know, and then they... And myself, you know, when I work with an orchestra over and over, then the musicians start understanding your music more and the conductor starts understanding your personal style and kind of 
guessing already your intentions, you know, because you know not everything can be written on the page. We know that as composers, but there's a lot of things that are brought through tradition, what we call tradition. Now, our music isn't completely new, so it doesn't have that tradition backing it up. But you start creating your mini tradition when you start working with our conductor over and over and over again. So what I like to do is I like to give them freedom, um, but I do try to be as clear as possible in communicating my intentions. You know, if there's perhaps a tempo that is really bothering me, then I will say that. Uh, but I'm even then, I'm a little flexible, you know. Um, it, yeah. So over the years, you must be basically collecting data from these conductors, right? <laughs> so when you're composing, are you thinking, oh, so-and-so said, watch out for that? Yes. I mean, when the more you write and the more you try what you have written, the more... Um, successful you will be at predicting all these variables because the variables in the orchestra are just Endless. so many yes exactly <laughs> so when you get to a rehearsal you will always have to make adjustments but you make less you know over time you start being better at understanding what is possible and what is not now you always want to be you don't always want to be play safe you know so we will always take risks here and there but then you start you know you take calculated risks also um, and knowing what will or will not work and if someone comes at you or a musician like this is not or this is possible this is just too hard you try to use you know you have like a reason why you are doing that you right know? if if you are perhaps inexperienced you know and you write a passage that is like just finishly difficult and you don't you yourself don't know exactly why that passage is finishly difficult, then you won't have a good argument against a musician. You know? But if you actually know that this is hard, that you're pushing the boundaries of the instrument and you have a good reason behind it, then the musician will respect you and will do the best to pull that off. Right, right. So, but over the years, it seems that we're definitely in a place where music has become more practical. And I wonder how, what do you think about that evolution? I'm thinking of your early 20th century... Some, most of the orchestral music is outrageous, right? If you think of Berg and the operatic repertoire. So why is that on the table now? Well, you know, I don't know. I, I suppose it does depend on what milieu you are kind of working at. Um, there, uh, there are certain, you know, places where music is expected to be practical, like a serve a practical purpose. But I do think that if you create your own space, you know, and and people really appreciate what you're doing, um, then they will go the extra mile and add that extra minute of rehearsal that you might need. Now, we know that orchestras are famously expensive and every minute counts. So contemporary works rarely get as much time as the larger works in the in the rest of the program but then that's when you have to have let's say um a skillful approach to how you write for the orchestra in that you will be able to convey your intentions but not necessarily writing the most complex difficult passages ever possible right and I actually have got a lot of feedback from conductors saying that the music I write is very difficult, which I myself don't think, <laughs> you know, when I actually write it down. Uh, and I, I certainly don't set out to write difficult music just right. because of that. You know, it's just, it's basically, I think a lot of it has to do with endurance as well. Right. When you wonder uh, what that means this day and age, does that mean we couldn't sight read it? <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. But, but you know, one, one thing that has been shifting for me in a 
positive way is that I've been able to write larger works. And when you do that, then you actually get the luxury of time. Uh, so it's, it's, it, you cannot give up, you know. Um, like, I wrote a, my first symphony in 2016, and that was with the National Orchestra of Spain, and that covered the whole second half of the program. So there was no way that the orchestra wouldn't devote enough time for that piece, you know. And, and they did a fantastic job. So, and, so I, I, you know, and it also, there's another element to it too, and that is how well do you manage to communicate or connect with the orchestra and the conductor. Um, because contemporary music might seem like like a task, like a chore to some orchestras. You know, it's like, we, we, this is like the quota we need to fill. But when you actually have music that they are excited about, they don't feel that way, you know? They are they feel excited. So the, the key is trying to find a balance, like at a personal level and an artistic level, to communicate well enough with everyone in your organization, from the CEO to the you know, to the conductor, to the musicians, and have them invested in your vision as well. You know, that's when you do that, you raise your credibility, and then you start noticing that, oh, you know what, we, we do want to work with you, and right. we will give you the time we... Because the resources are there. And the music is of quality that warrants this. Exactly, yeah. exactly. This episode of Classical Chops is sponsored by the Los Angeles Chamber Orchestra. Committed to making great music personal, the Los Angeles Chamber Orchestra has concerts for everyone. From Baroque music to full, lush orchestral concerts and contemporary music, see what's playing at laco.org. Enjoy 10% off your ticket order using the code CLASSICALCHOPS. So tell me how you got, let's back up a little bit to the National Conservatory in, in Lima. I'd like to know how you got from Lima to Finland and then to UC Berkeley in California. So the journey begins, I would say, I live, uh, I graduated from high school in 95. And uh, then I spent two years basically preparing myself to enter the conservatory. But those two years I did, um, you know, I worked for the, as assistant librarian for the, for the Lima Philharmonic Orchestra, and I also worked as you know musical assistant at a at a production company that was doing musicals. Um, so I kept myself busy, but I was also studying with uh, Enrique Turriaga at the time, that compo- condo- um, composer who just turned a hundred years old. I you know those lessons were so important, so formative in my life. I have to say because sometimes we will start at two p.m. and we'll go all the way to ten p.m. and he, you know, he would bring up these anecdotes with Honegger, with Copland, with Stravinsky, because he had met all these people. And for a single counterpoint rule, he would like bring four different methods. So he wasn't ever like the kind that will tell you you can or cannot do this. There will be a reason behind it. So, you know, there was a lot of composition involved, compositional thinking involved when he was already teaching me harmony or counterpoint. So when we got, when I got into the conservatory, I continued studying composition with him. And what idiom were you working in then? Um, you know, there was my my idiom has always have veered toward tonality in a way, but he has. I, you know, he definitely wanted to take me away from that. And he would, for example, there are two ways he did that was have me write for percussion, you know, so that I wouldn't have to worry about pitch that much. And the other thing was writing uh, poems, like song cycles, uh, because 
for for a young composer, that's very useful because you don't have to be worried about the form so much. And form is one of the most complex things for a composer to really understand, especially in the grand scale. We could do a whole episode just on that. That's right. <laughs> okay, let's do it. <laughs> let's do it. <laughs> so um, when you write on a poem, basically the poem is giving you the form, and then you can choose to you know do word painting or just you know there are so many different ways to to set text, but the that demands. Uh, it really sparks your imagination, you know. It's just so many things that can go into that. Why so, do you think form is such a challenge? Um, well, at least it has been a challenge to me, maybe. Not. No, not just you. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, there is one thing about getting lost in time within, like, a piece that is more than five minutes long. Or, you know, there is a thing about the architecture of an overall piece that... Um, I have been learning over the years and learning in Finland and studying Sibelius also helped because he's a master at that. So it really, it really, there's the other thing about my background as my, my father was an architect. And when, because we could not communicate in musical terms or in architectural terms, literally, we will actually use both kind of to, to try to bridge the gap. So when I will sit at the piano or explain something to him, he will come back to me and talk about, you know, the structure and, and the design and the proportions and the, the columns and the pillars and all this. And, and I will, you know, try to explain to him also in musical terms what I was trying to say. So we will meet somewhere in the middle, but his thinking also influenced the way that I, that I wrote. And then I, I started looking at, you know, um, the great composers and how they how they build. Of course, they used like the classical forms like sonata and all that. But the more you know, the closer you go in time, it was the 20th century. Then form is very a very individual thing. You know, it's a very uh, each composer has his or her own way to dealing with it. But and it's there. It's there. But there has to be a, a discourse. And I think that that the greatest challenge, at least for me, is is you know, vertical uh, in uh, against uh, um, versus uh, horizontal. And when you have a massive orchestral score, you know, you tend to get lost in the vertical. You go like five, six bars, and you're like, oh my God, I wrote so much music, and this is just like six seconds, you know. And, and you're like, wow, I still have like a thousand seconds to go. I don't know. So then, then so you're sustaining like... sustaining <laughs> that becomes <laughs> yeah. exhausting. Correct. So that's when you have to distance yourself from the page, you know, just go back to your, to your. You know, I, I sometimes I prefer to design that in my own brain without writing anything or just catching, just catching and drawing something on the paper. That's how I will start actually in the early years to train myself in form. Like there is one piece that I decided to to this to compose like a wave. You know, I said in overall terms, the overall shape is going to be this wave that's going to have a peak somewhere. Uh, and the, the first third, and then the rest of it will go on decay. Now, I started working on it, and the, the form ended up being the opposite. <laughs> you know, the peak ended up being on the two-thirds of the piece, which actually is more or less like the golden proportion. Then I understood, now I understand why the golden proportion works so well. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, right. Because my piece climaxed there, and, and, you know, anyway... But what's amazing uh, about that is that you were open, you weren't stubborn to keep it... You know, a lot of people would keep hitting that with like um, forcing it I should say forcing it to stay in that original form that you thought right so I, you listened I, to the music and you adapted trust me it was for I tried I tried I mean but at first it was good that yeah I was flexible enough but on the other hand I thought damn I didn't did what I said to do 
you know, on the other hand. So I, I did see it as a success and a failure at the same time. Because success, because I was, you know, fast enough to recognize that the piece was not going to work otherwise. But on the other hand, I realized that the material I had chosen would have never worked anywhere anyway that way. Right. right. So uh, there, was a, there was some mistake that I had done, a calculation at the very beginning. So my aim, like, over time was to be able to really deliver what I had said to deliver. I see. And for example, in the opera, uh, the Bel Canto opera, which is, you know, three, uh, three hours, uh, basically, two and a half hours of uninterrupted music, that I really had to sit down and plan very, very carefully. And I plan even the duration of the movements um, or each section, you know, and how many minutes here and there. And I have to say, I got pretty close to what I had initially done. But I, one thing that I learned is the best way to achieve that is not working chronologically. So if you try to work chronologically, uh, you don't have, let's say, the privilege of traveling in time. You know, you don't have the privilege of knowing how the piece ends or what is the most important moment, you know, two-thirds down the, down the way. So once you actually go in leaps and bounds and go back and forth, then you have a better idea of how to build. And that's when architecture comes to place. And then you lay it out and compose the um, connective tissue? Correct, right. correct. So for Bel Canto, what I did is like, since I hadn't written an opera before, the hardest part for me was going to write the action. You know, the easiest will be writing the arias because the arias are closer to what I understand, like a song cycle where time stops, where we're more or less dwelling uh, on on either you know personal feelings or, or, or our own state of mind whereas when you have action you have a few characters interacting and you have a lot of text to deliver and, and the whole thing has to have a direction and a clear that is really hard to do so what I will do is like I will use the arias as the pillars, and then I will understand, okay, I have this motivic, melodic material. So now I understand I can infuse, you know, the transitions or the previous sections with all of this information going back. So then I, once you get into the aria, you know, you have probably heard some of it already, or, and then some sections down the road will also be informed by what happened there. So that was my strategy to actually make it work. You know? Well, I listened to it, and it worked. <laughs> it's such a beautiful piece. <laughs> Give us a little context about how the piece came about. Um, it was a Renee Fleming initiative at the Chicago Lyric Opera, um, and it's based on Ann Patchett's novel. Yes, so that was a commission from 2000. 12. That's when the announcement took place. I guess but we should I also t- say that it was um, shown on PBS Great Performances. That's right. And, uh, well, that was like, that was a jackpot. I mean, I wasn't expecting <laughs> that for sure. My first opera on PBS. But definitely, you know, our first encounter was in 2011, after a few months of just exchanging emails, um, where I, I never thought I was going to get the job, to be honest with you. But, you know, and I, and I didn't know exactly what kind of job I was <laughs> going to get. <laughs> I thought it was going to be perhaps one of three operas, in a, you know, in, a, in an evening where there were going to be, like, short pieces. But then when I met her and Andrew Davis in New York, then I realized, oh, my goodness, they actually want a full-length opera. Um, now, I had come with a few ideas in my mind and Renee told me so we know what the opera wants uh, you know, we, we want the opera to be based on this book 
and then and my first reaction, first of all, I didn't know the book, and then I felt, oh goodness, hmm, I felt darn. I thought, you know, I wish I had a choice in the in the subject, you know, and but well, that's fine anyway. What then, would you have chosen? <laughs> oh, yeah, that doesn't matter anymore. You know why? <laughs> Because when she gave me the book, which I hadn't read, and I opened it, the first second page, I realized, wow, this is about. Well, this is a, a fictional novel. But it is based on actual events that took place in Lima, Peru. Now, René didn't know I was Peruvian, and the book never says that those things took place in Peru. It just says an unnamed South American country. So I just felt that the stars on a line, you know. I thought, well, I do have to take this job, and I don't think I could have come up with a better idea myself, because it's so close to home. You know, I was 18 at the time of the crisis. Uh, so briefly, just to explain, uh, in 1996, um, a group of terrorists from the Movimiento Revolucionario Tupac Amaru took, um, you know, basically stormed into the residence of the, um, the Japanese ambassador, where there was a huge gathering of with over 700 guests, uh, high-ranking diplomats and politicians, and the crisis ended up lasting four and a half months. They freed most of the hostages during the first few days, but they, they um, stayed with a core group of 70 people uh, all the way until April of 97. Uh, so that was on the headlines every day, and you had like the international press just uh, surrounding the embassy and trying to get a glimpse of what was going inside. And so you, it was a time bomb. Nobody knew when it was going to end and how it was going to end. And was there a soprano there? No. Oh. <laughs> so that's Ann Patchett's oh, like that you know, imagination. <laughs> and because she said she was glued to the news uh, as all of this was unfolding, but it, it, it was so operatic in her mind. Mm -hmm. And then she created in this, you know, so it is a fictional story, but it is, the frame is real, you know. And, and when I took on the project, I also set to bring some of the elements from the actual crisis into the opera as well. So we were not shy, for example, when mentioning the place, the date, who the terrorists were. Um, there are clear allusions to, you know, the, the priest, but that was already in the book, actually. The priest, the Red Cross envoy, and all of that what actually, that actually really happened. And then on stage with Kevin Newberry, um, when we were doing working on the stage design and the clothes designs, you know, uh, they were all based on the actual crisis as well. So when you see it on stage, what you see is very close to, you know, of course, with certain licenses, but, you know, even the uniforms were inspired on the actual events. In any case, so let's go back to when I was meeting with Renée. Um, so she gave me the book. I read it. I said, yes, I want this so badly. Yes, I want to do this. And she said, great. So we started to look for a librettist. And I was, I was very adamant in trying to get someone who spoke fluent Spanish so I could actually share a lot of material, research material that I had, and someone who actually would understand more or less the complexities of South American reality. And the main reason for that was this. You know, as a Peruvian, you know, when you're trying to bring the, a book that is written by an American author into the stage, you want someone to be able to bridge the gap. And I thought Nilo was ideal. So because Nilo, first of all, he's... He's fluent in both languages. He writes beautifully on both. Uh, he is from Cuba, but he came to the United States with us when he was eight years old as a refugee, actually. 
um, a Pulitzer Prize winner, and he actually wrote one play called Two Sisters and a Piano that caught my attention among me, all his other plays because it also is a kind of a hostage crisis. It's about two sisters that are kept in captivity by the you know militia in by the government in Cuba, and all of it takes place within a single a single a house. You know, was um, he sold on the novel? He was very immediately. He was. He was. He was sold. Our first meeting was took place in December of 2011. We were supposed to go on for only, I think, an hour. That was the lunch that we were supposed to have. We ended up like saying goodbye after five hours. We couldn't stop talking. And to date, actually, our phone calls are relatively long, I have to say. <laughs> I'm working with him on Dreamer as well now. This is going to be our second, second collaboration, which is fantastic. So, But yes, so after we got our our uh, librettist, we got our director, Kevin Newberry, and then, you know, everything started to it flow. It just started happening. Yeah. Well, now tell me, where were you? Okay, so the, the opera is, is happening. It's, um, you're going to write it. Where are you with your own operatic influences? What operas did you like? What was your experience with opera? My experience with opera was very limited up to that point. I was mostly um, into symphonic music, you know. But that definitely opened a... Cl- I mean, I did my research. I started to, like, go to all the live in HD med broadcasts. Uh, I started to revisit, you know, some of the operas I had seen, to buy scores. Um, and, you know, I really... I, I had always felt a certain affinity for, like, the early operas, like the Monteverdi's. And some of the masterful, you know, Mozart's are just an inevitable reference, too. But there's some Britain, like the Turn of the Screw, it's just so beautiful, it's just so haunting, you know. So I, it's it's hard, I, but I love the grandeur of a Wagner, orchestrally speaking, you know, and vocally speaking, too. So there was all of that coming. But I had to, at the same time, absorb all of it, and I had to distance myself from it, too, because I wanted my opera to have its own, you know, flavor, its own rhythm, too. And when you write an opera as a composer, you're also kind of delivering a statement of, well, this is how I see the form. This is my vision of the form. And there's one thing I do have, which is not necessarily a talent, but I I, <laughs> I lose concentration really quickly when it comes... When I get bored, I get bored, and I disconnect really easily. So I need music and to be very engaging, you know? So... If an opera will lose my attention and I will have to make the go the extra mile to really stay in tune with it, even though I do it because I'm trained to do that, this is not exactly the ideal experience for me. You know, I like operas that are constantly demanding my attention. So I said to do that in Bel Canto. I said to do something that would like constantly demand the attention of the audience. And, and you succeeded. Well, thank I you. I couldn't <laughs> stop watching. That's fantastic. Well, thank you. At classicalchops.org, we share our vision through artist interviews, our Facebook community, our YouTube channel, and original free interactive learning activities for both classroom and family use. Our dynamic free educational modules teach kids about opera, chamber music, and the symphony orchestra. Materials can be downloaded and explored from our website, classicalchops.org. Okay, so tell me a little bit about the rehearsal process. I'm always fascinated about a new opera and the rehearsal process. How did that go? That was different. Um, <laughs> let me tell you the main reason. Opera is a collaborative form of art. Thank you. And it's very unlike, you know, when a composer in the solitude of his studio is like trying to produce his work and basically 
from zero to a hundred, like surrounded by a, lots of people in the orchestra, in an audience with a conductor. It's always a shock to me, actually, when I'm taken and plucked, let's say, from my studio onto that context of rehearsal, right? With the opera, it was very, very different. It was a gradual process, and it had been collaborative even from, you know, before the rehearsal times, because I had already been showing part of my work to the creative team. So when I got there, um, it all starts with, you know, the piano, and just a, you know, very humble, just a piano, some sort of mock-up of the set and a smaller space, and then someone else who is like helping the singers get their pitches and, and a conductor. Um, very intimate. Um, I love that. Uh, I think that's because I love also seeing how the director starts to create a piece in situ. You know, I, it's not like they, they do come with a, an idea of what they want to do, but Kevin especially was very different in that. He was always, he always says, best idea wins. And, you know, it doesn't have to be me who comes up with the best idea. And so he's always very open and receptive to that, including, you know, input from me. So I always wanted to, you know, be very respectful because he's a director, but he was like, no, just, just tell me what you want, you know, what you think. And the, the singers will do the same. They were encouraged to do the same. So you could see the piece coming together, you know, little by little. And you could see that, you know, whatever musical gestures you had written might be used in the way you had intended or not, you know. Sometimes they will surprise you with things like, oh my goodness, this actually works much better than I had. You know, I had in my idea that she will be walking from here to here in this passage and like like that is all scrapped, you know. It's basically the, in the, the demands of the three-dimensional space, which are really hard to predict in your brain, that also influences how you're going to create the piece. The rehearsal process then on goes on to, I, say, I will say that was like a two, three weeks of that. We had a, a luxury of having six weeks, actually, of rehearsal for this premiere. And with the orchestra, I will sometimes have to split myself because towards the end of the process, I will have to go down... Uh, to rehearse with the orchestra, and that was that was so exhilarating, but at the same time so frustrating because unlike an orchestral work that you rehearse from beginning to end, more or less, you can read in a single rehearsal. We, I think, we spent three rehearsals, and we only managed to go to the end of the opera at the end of the third or or the beginning of the fourth. I can't remember right now. So it was like, oh my goodness, give it, give me the ending. I need this right now. But um, but it was just great because um, well, Andrew Davis was very 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 disciplined in like how he knows how to you know surgically attack the passages, and so he needed he knew what needed to be worked on. So he wasn't necessarily going in chronological order, right? But then you see the orchestra. But it's it's still not complete, you know. We still need the singers on top of that. And then will come the seats probably. And that was a, an event on its own because it, it it feels like a concert in a way. Um, the, the concert setting of the opera also gives new light to the music. But then you add all the complexity of the staging to that. It's just... What a machinery! I mean, I just—it has to work like a, like a Swiss clock. I just—I was just impressed by the whole thing, and also because this opera was written for great forces, right? For like a full orchestra, and I think fifteen or eighteen named roles, and you have like a full chorus. So, and it's a—it's a big house, you know, Lyric Opera Chicago. It's a big house too. So the sheer dimension of this was overwhelming, even even for me, you know. So it was, uh, it is humbling, because you see that you, you as a composer, yeah, the music is the leading force in opera, no doubt about that, but you really are one part of the whole puzzle, you know. You are, you, it, it humbles you down to see how many more people have to come to make this really work.
Which is what's so wonderful about the art form. Yes, yes. So, um, Oh, tell me a little bit about how you put together the symphonic canvas, because I noticed that's going to be... Oh, yeah. Is it a suite? Is it... So, um, Miguel Hartedoye, who I was talking about right. earlier, uh, the Peruvian conductor, he said, you know, he went to one of the shows in Chicago, and he said, we definitely need an orchestral suite. You know, I want to conduct an orchestral suite of this. And he commissioned it. So him, the Atlanta Symphony, and the Bremen Philharmonic in Germany. And he just finished conducting it yesterday, actually. Um, yesterday was the last performance in Bremen. And um, the idea of the canvas was, first of all, the piece is supposed to work on its own, too. You know, even though... It's a concert? Right, it's a concert piece, 30 minutes long, just for orchestra, and it is divided into three sections. The first uh, movement is basically the first act, and then the second movement is the first scene of act two, which is a, the biggest scene and one of the most important, and then the last movement is basically the very last scene. And how did you integrate the voices into the orchestra? Well, uh... So I went, first of all, I tried to look for, naturally, what were the most symphonic passages in all of it, and then which arias would stand, you know, the translation, the best. Um, but there was also one particular aria that everybody had loved so much that I just had to have it, you know. It oh, so the like, voices are in this? No, I mean, no. there are no voices. Oh, okay. But I transcribed, right, you right. know, some of the... For example, there is an aria to St. Rose of Lima in the set, the first... Uh, the first scene of Act Two that was unequivocally the you know the audience's favorite you know so I think they would have killed me if I didn't put it in the <laughs> in the suite <laughs> so I actually had I, I you know I, there are many instruments doing it but it starts with an English horn and it it suits really well you just have to see which um, it's about the register you know when you think about the situra in the voice you want to you want to feel that the instrument is more or less aligned with how the voice feels in that particular sweet spot because there are certain notes in the high register that demand a certain you know uh, effort from the singer that if you put on an on an instrument that is where that register is just easy then you will not feel the tension you know that you need to feel so you really have to pick and choose really carefully what instruments, especially wind instruments, you know, or in one passage I actually used the cello on a more, like, on a high register, but you know that the string is going to sing so well, you know. So it is really, it's carefully calculated, but it's a, it's a, it's a tough task, you know. But most of, most of the music that I took was uh, choral symphonic, and I made that, that. So the idea of canvas, I love, I love the word canvas because you can think of it in two ways, as a, as a finished painting, or an actual just empty canvas where you're going to execute a painting. And this is what I feel the suite is. You know, it is a, a finished piece. It's a finished work of art. But there are no voices in it. So you can still think of it as a, as a blank slate, you know, for the voices to come in. Is it more or less an invitation for people to listen to the opera as well? Right, right. So I'd love to talk to you about American Salvaje, your orchestra piece, um, which has... Well, tell us a little bit about it, and we'll give it away. So, a quick background. It was written in 2006, and it was written for the inauguration of the National Library of Peru, and the Ministry of Education commissioned it back then, and it was, it actually was performed at the library itself, and I wanted a connection with literature. That's why it's a symphonic poem. So I used a very well-known poem in Peru, and I used it as, you know, basically structure the piece around that. 
Now, the, the one thing that is very peculiar about that piece is that I is the first time and one of the very, very few times that I've used um, Peruvian native instruments. And it opens up with like, I think it's 10 conch shells. We call them pututos. And they have this eerie, wonderful ceremonial sound, you know, that is very powerful too. It's such a striking opening. <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, it's... Uh, it's ancestral in a way, you know, because they, that makes this this, and that, this is what I wanted to convey. It was more or less because the whole poem kind of tells the story of the conquest in a but way. It, that could have become so cliche, but it wasn't. It just created this mysterious atmosphere. It was burned out of necessity, I think, because I had to find a way to paint the landscape of America before the arrival of the Spaniards or South America, you know, and so. What I envisioned, like, well, it, let's use... So the pututo, the conch shell, was used in the Inca and pre-Inca times to call people for ceremonial events of great importance. And they will, like, go atop a mountain, blow the pututo, and you will hear it for miles on end, you know. So this is what I thought, well, okay, here we are on an important occasion, the opening of a major institution in Peru, and this is a time when, you know, the Europeans hadn't arrived... So what do we need? And this is just the thing I came up with, you know. We need that sound. And after that, gradually, then I used the, the bird whistles and I used uh, ocarinas, which are also... I mean, they are ocarinas were born simultaneously in many parts of the world, but we have our own little version, too, that is very cute. Yeah, the bird um, whistles, were they always part of the... Yes. For audience participation? Uh, no. <laughs> that was uh, so, just for the Frankfurt. So I, I conducted the premiere, actually, in 2006, and back then... I did it with the orchestra, because it's, you can do it with the orchestra musicians too, it's written that way. But I, I had forgotten that I wrote a footnote at the end of the score saying the um, non-traditional you know, instruments can be played by additional musicians. I just thought that in the future if someone wants to do it, okay. I forgot about it completely. And then comes, which year is this? Uh, 2016. And then Andres and... Um, his friend Carlos Andres, who works with him, they asked me, would you mind if actually we actually use, you know, a few more of those instruments and have, you know, other people participate in it? It's like, um, no. I mean, because you actually wrote that in your score. It's like, I went on it and it's like, <laughs> actually, you're right. <laughs> That's exactly what I wanted. <laughs> right? <laughs> and I thought, you know what? I've, it's never been done that way. But yes, it can be done that way, and I look forward to seeing how it works. So I went to Houston. Um, they had done it already in Germany first, um, but I hadn't had access to the video. Anyway, then I went to Houston, and they did it live, and they had the conch shells on... They all had them elevated on the mezzanine. They, want, they had, like, right, center, left. So they had the bird whistles, they had the ocarinas, and they had the bututos spaced out, and they had the orchestra there. And it was just an incredible effect that was enveloping you. And the yeah. audience could go around and play them? No, oh. not in that performance. So the, every performance, they change it. What, I, what, what was fun about the Germany performance was that they actually bought an extra 2,000 bird whistles. <laughs> right. And the audience, when yeah. the camera panned out to them playing, uh, yeah. and, and I mean, they were know, so happy to be participating. Exactly. I th that, was, that was the brilliant idea of, of Andres, and that, that was how, you know, you, well, it's, I think there were 20,000 people in the park, I think that I, I was told. And most of the kids got a hold of, you know, all these bird whistles. And they just loved playing, you know, because 
it's just the most simple thing to do, but you know, they will have at least have to follow the cue of the conductor. And they felt they were part of the performance. It's a great way to bring in the audience, you know, into the whole thing. And this does it at the beginning, does it at the end. Uh, but you know, yeah, definitely it, it immerses you in a way. And it was part of the tapestry of the piece. It was correct needed. Correct. correct. So, and that's you know how how the piece progresses and. As it goes on, it kind of, you know, I bring this massive chorale that kind of represents the arrival of the Spaniards and all that, and everything fuses together. But the one thing that I like of the poem, you know, there has always been a very conflicted history in Peru and South America in general about the mixed Sp- uh, Spanish uh, Inca, you know, or, or native Indian heritage. And that's that they've always clashed, you know, culturally. But what I like about the poem is that the poet is proud of both heritages. So... He's not discounting one of them, you know. And I felt, in a way, yes, it was a violent occupation. It, it was incredibly violent, for sure. But on the other hand, I feel like I, our current countries, my current self, I'm a, you know, I'm a result of this blend, you know. As violent as it was, it's good to acknowledge that, you know. So the piece kind of, kind of represents that union toward the end. It's beautiful. I'm Brett Banducci, and you've been listening to Classical Chops Studio, the podcast from classicalchops.org. You can follow us on Facebook and YouTube, and if you haven't already, please subscribe and review us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Thanks for listening.